Hello, and welcome to episode 66 of the Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people that create it. I'm your host, Craig Andera. First thing I want to mention today is a note on episode 65. Uh, with Michael Parento, we had a little problem with the editing where we kind of dropped about five seconds of my side of the conversation, but not Michael's, which meant that things were happening like it seemed like I was interrupting him or laughing at his jokes before they were done. It was just an editing issue. We've got it all sorted out. We've posted a new version that's fixed the problem. So if you heard that, just want to let you know that I was not being rude. Um, so, but it's all fixed now. So just wanted to mention that. Uh, the other thing I want to mention today is that we have a brand new events page at cognitech.com events, and you can go there to find out about upcoming events such as our various webinars. So that's cognitech.com events. Um, it's also fairly obvious from the home pages, and you can click events from the, the top nav bar. Um, so uh, the rest of this I want to talk about today is about the conj, which, you know, uh, as I record this, is only a few weeks away, uh, 2014, and... Um, so, you know, you want to get your tickets if you haven't already. It's kind of a last call. Um, if you are going, uh, and we certainly hope that you are, um, I definitely want to encourage you to say hi uh, to me or to any other Cognitechs that you run into. We are really looking forward to meeting everybody. So anybody you see that works at Cognitech, uh, just come up and strike up a conversation. I guarantee we would love to do that with you. Um, it certainly goes double for me. Uh, if you're listening to this and you see me at the conj, that would be, I would just love to say hi. It happened a lot last year and uh, I'm looking forward to that again. Um, another thing I want to mention that's related to the conj is the Scheme and Functional Programming Workshop. Um, if you haven't gotten your tickets for that, you definitely should. They're $15 for conj attendees. Um, and uh, it's the day before the con, so that's Wednesday. Now, I know not everybody is going to be able to travel in for that as well. Hope you can. I'll be there. But if you're not, and if you are coming in uh, Wednesday evening, since the con starts um, on Thursday, November 20th, if you happen to be there on the evening of the 19th, uh, the Scheme and Functional Programming Workshop is hosting an event called Programming Enthusiasts Unite for Great Justice. Um, and uh, that's just going to be a get-together for anybody going to the Conj or to the Scheme and Functional Programming Workshop, and that's going to be at the Capital City Brewing Company. So definitely come out to that if you're in the area. It should be fun. Get some schemers together, get some closurians or closuristas or whatever we call ourselves and, uh, and hang out. I went last year, and it was super fun, so it's always cool to hang out with that. Uh, another Lisp community, they have a, a lot of interesting things to say, and it's fun to... Um, chat with them. So come on down and have a drink of your choice and, and hang out. Uh, I think that's all I have for today, so we will go on to episode 66 of the Cognicast. Ready to go. You guys ready to go? Ready to go. We're ready. Great. 
All right then, well welcome everybody. Today is Friday, September 5th in 2014 and this is the Cognicast. And today on the show we are very excited to welcome two wonderful guests that we've been meaning to have on for quite some time. And I'm speaking of course of Toby Crawley and Jim Crossley. Welcome to the show guys. Hey, hey. Thanks, good to be here. Uh, so you guys uh, flipped a coin or Greco-Roman wrestled or something before the show to decide who was going to pick the intro you told me, I forgot. Who is who is doing the intro song for us? Jim will be doing the intro song. Okay, so Jim, go ahead. What's our what's our what's what do we play in on? So if I may introduce the intro song just a little bit. Of course. Right? You know, this is my favorite part of the uh, Cognicast. <laughs> I think it's a very novel thing you do. I think it makes it fun for the listeners as well as the guests. So we took way too much time thinking this through as to what the intro song should be. Uh, that being aside, we, it's a closure podcast, or at least that's what we'd like to talk about while we're on it today. So I thought we would choose a song that emulated closure in some way. So I think for that, we want the song to talk about simplicity, and we want it to be from the 70s. So <laughs> yeah. So we would like to go with Sing a Simple Song by Sly and the Family Stone. Excellent. All right. Well, people have been hearing that while we've been talking. And by the way, I have to give you guys a nod you were on one of my favorite podcasts, Chaz Emmerich's Mostly Lazy, and uh, you guys were great, hilarious. One of my favorite moments on the show, um, aside from the interesting discussion, was when you asked him <laughs> when he was going <laughs> to ask you about the music. Yeah. It just cracked me up. I just, I love that. So uh, Well, that uh, was for you, so I'm glad you heard that. Oh, right? yeah, yeah. No, I was I was laughing. I, I think, I don't remember if I was driving or not, but it's probably better that I wasn't. I might have gone off the road there. That was pretty funny. Well, awesome. So we're so glad to have you guys on the show. I mean, I've had you in mind um, since before even I heard you on Chaz's show. Um, because you've been doing work that is very interesting in the closure community. Um, as you say, closure is one of the things that we talk about quite frequently. Before we get to that, maybe we'll start with introductions. And since uh, we've had let Jim talk a little bit, well, let's give Toby a chance to introduce himself to our listeners. Go ahead, Toby. Hey, so yeah, I work at Red Hat on a mutant. Um, it's a lot of fun. Uh, before that, I, I, I did a lot of Ruby, and before that, Java, before that, C. So it's a, a lot of different technologies I've worked with. Uh, but cur- Clojure is currently my favorite of those. Uh, we'll see how we'll see how it see if that changes in a few years. But yeah, awesome. And uh, Jim, why don't you uh, give us a little background on yourself? Uh, very similar to Toby. Kind of worked in. Uh, kind of spent a large part of my early career doing enterprise jobby stuff. Uh, around Atlanta, then moved to more dynamic stuff with Python and Ruby, and uh, that took me to uh, Red Hat to uh, work basically on TorqueBox, kind of combining Ruby and Java skills, and Toby came along shortly thereafter, and once we had TorqueBox kind of situated, we, we moved on to Clojure and conceived a mutant. Awesome. So you guys both mentioned a mutant, which, of course, as people can probably guess, at least some people out there, I'm sure, have heard, uh, is is the sort of the proximate reason for having you on the show. There's other things I'd like to talk about too, but uh, it's got a wonderful name. But for anybody out there that isn't familiar with us, what exactly is an mutant? Do, do you want to take that, Jim, or do you? I, do you want to... I can try, and if I miss something, I'll, I'll, I'll backfill. Yeah, backfill. So the answer to that question, it it comes in two parts, because a mutant right now is really two things. We have a version one, we have a version two, which Toby accidentally named the deuce in that uh, Chaz podcast. (laughs) A mutant one was basically an application server for closure. It basically wrapped the JBoss 
AS7 application server, and uh, and you had to install that in order to use, you know, the 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 closure services or closure namespaces wrapping some of those services that provide or provided by uh, AS7, and those services are basically web caching, messaging, and scheduling. The Deuce removes the necessity to install that application server. Uh, which is really what we're mostly excited about. We just released our first alpha last week. Um, and so it, it offers the same services, but it can run, uh, run those same services, same behavior, same functionality um, outside of the container. So it's, it's a more traditional closure library. It, those features become enhanced when run inside of uh, Wildfly, which is the current... JBoss application server, um, but that is a totally optional thing. So we think it it fits the needs of of the two communities we try to join uh, much better. And those are you know closure developers possibly looking to integrate with enterprisey services, and also uh, the enterprise developers who are looking to experiment with closure. So what did I miss, Toby? Uh, not, not much. That was really good. I think it'd be worth mentioning what the kind of what the advantages of run, why you would why you would want to run it inside a wildfly container. And yeah, yeah. You get you get uh, you get clustering, so you also you get high availability failover for some of the services. You'll get uh, load balance messaging. You'll get distributed caching across those nodes. So that's kind of what you gain when you when you move to the container. And also, if you're in a in a shop where, as Jim said, an enterprise shop, which the the ops team is familiar with working with a container. Uh, what you give them is just a war file, which is different than a mutant one. With a mutant one, they had to either install a install a mutant in the data center or uh, overlay all that stuff we added to JBoss AS on top of an existing JBoss AS server, uh, which which led to some resistance from ops folks. They just they they want to manage the server the way they're used to doing it, and they just want you to give them a war file. So with the mutant two, you can do that as long as they're running Wildfly and eventually the next version of EAP, which is Red Hat's supported version of Wildfly, the application server. So this is actually the part about a mutant that I have. I re- I never haven't dug into it the way that I've wanted to, but as I've heard people talk about it, this is the bit that I honestly have had the hardest time grasping. Is the the part that you've started to explain, which is the you know what does it buy me? I mean because. Uh-huh. I'm for example, so let's see, where do I live? I live primarily right now in the AWS space. And so if I think to myself, oh, I'm going to write a web application, I have a bunch of choices, you know, everything from roll my own server and deploy it using a ton of custom scripts to maybe using something like Elastic Beanstalk for the web serving part, you mm-hmm. know, which is essentially their, I don't know, servicization of Tomcat, I guess. And then they have their various a la carte services, which are all very convenient since I don't have to do a lot of the operations work myself. Is that similar in a sense to what an application container like JBoss provides? And and, and if so, how does that, I, I still don't quite understand how that changes going forward with with the, the next version. I mean, I guess you have more options, but I still don't understand how it relates to like how I would deploy and write my applications. Did that make sense? <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. I think so. There's there's a, a couple of things there. I mean, with a, with a mutant two, you can develop your application locally like you normally would, and then so I guess I guess in that way it's very similar to what you're talking about. Like, are you going to deploy it to a container? Uh, are you going to deploy it to the the services that AWS provides? 
Uh, I think I'm gonna uh, uh, pass the baton to Jim. Well, I mean, so Greg, are you basically are you are you asking what uh, a mutant is good for, or what an application server in general is good for? I think both of those questions are interesting ones, and I think by answering them, you m- will make me smarter. So I'd love to hear well, your take let, on let's, that. Let's just start with the application server. The application server is a central place where you manage the services used for a variety of applications, like not just your application, but other applications that might be produced by other teams in your enterprise. So that configuration group is basically handed a war file, and they know what to do with it. They've got JBoss tuned, or whatever application server they're using, tuned in a way that you know whatever services that particular war file is using uh, are available and running well. Now, again, a lot of this stuff for an application server it's built around standards from Java, Sun, Oracle now, I guess, whatever. You know, so you're using JEE, I guess is what the official title is now. So no closure developer wants to deal with any of that stuff. Very few Java developers want to deal with any of that <laughs> stuff. But the services are still real. You know, what they provide, messaging is messaging. You know, caching is caching, web is web, whatever, scheduling is scheduling. I mean, you know, I guess the the appeal of the application server is really more from a system administration perspective, uh, managing a cluster of machines, making it easy to add a machine, bring one down. Now, I will tell you, as soon as you said AWS, AWS puts restrictions, you know, on what you can do uh, that make deploying a cluster somewhat of a of a challenge there. So I should I should say that. Probably the places where you see most uh, application server cluster deployments are, you know, in data centers where those system administrators, you know, control uh, their machines, whether virtual or or, or bare metal. Sure, um, we actually see that a lot, where there's plenty of people for a variety of reasons don't use, you know, a cloud provider like Amazon. So it makes sense. Right. Right. Yeah. The big the big limitation there is that AWS does not allow multicast. And right. That's what makes it a little more work to set up a, a, a wildfly cluster. Right. And if you're yeah. if you're using one of their services, then they handle, generally speaking, the things that you would want that for, you know, discovery. But right. of course, if you're deploying something that's not shipped by AWS, then you have that issue. And I think there's some support, but I've never tried to do it, and I know that um, other people have had challenges doing it in a in a cloud, which makes sense, of course, if you're giving up control over the networking to get the benefits of what they're providing then right yeah makes sense okay sorry if, go ahead no if you and so if you're deploying if you're developing against something you're intended to deploy to aws and you're using something like simple queue service or whatever mm-hmm. it is uh how do you how do you develop locally are you talking to a remote sqs <laughs> yeah no that's a great question and actually um when i've done it it's been via tunneling right so mm-hmm. if you if i'm running things locally often oftentimes you know there'll be an ssh tunnel that i have to go through and so there's an additional setup step but there are some, AWS does provide some answers for that. And to some degree, as you say, like web is web. And so I've done things like when I run locally, I'll use Jetty, right? Mm-hmm. Like so line ring server, right? Which just runs a local Jetty. And then when I deploy, I'm actually running in Tomcat. And so there are differences, right, in the runtime, uh, the production right. uh, configuration versus development time. But it works because by the time the code gets to my closure stuff, for the most part, nothing significant is different. But I was thinking that actually, as you were talking about, you know, being able to do immutant development locally, that that's an advantage is that to the extent that things are the same, 
that's I like that, right? Especially because that's right. There are some services you mentioned SQS. I don't know if there's a way to run that purely locally. Dynamo actually does have a local uh, Dynamo DB. Actually, does right. have a local thing you can run. So it not the same. It doesn't do. I, I don't quote me on this, but I don't think it does like throttling, which is a fairly important part of um, how Dynamo behaves in production. But you can run it locally. So like if you're on a, you know, we used to always say what if you're on an airplane, right? But of course now on an airplane you have Wi-Fi. So <laughs> right. Um, but if you're on a desert island with no internet connectivity, then you could still at least get something similar for that. Right. Yeah. So I mean, that's so with with a mutant, you can you can develop completely like you're used to using, uh, just using Linegan locally, uh, and then you're using the same components that you would use in the container. And if so, if you're eventually going to deploy to a cluster of wildfly wildfly instances. You can develop your app locally using the same components, and then with little or no changes to that app, deploy it to a local container for testing, QA, whatever, and deploy to a remote cluster running somewhere. And the, the, the issues you'll run into are generally at the wildfly clustering level, like making sure I get clustering working. Once you get those pieces solved at an ops level, then it, it works the same in all those environments. Mm. You know, and it's really, it's, really, it's really not – you're not changing anything, Toby. You're just repackaging. Right. Well, I said little to no. I mean, there, you know, it depends on what features you're using. You may, you may make changes here and there. We'll see. I'm not, I don't want to promise that you'll be able to do this and never make a change. Well, that, you know, that's, that's the that, goal, though. That's the goal. That's the goal. The goal. Yeah. But uh, we're going to try to make that happen. Um, okay. Well, that, that. Go ahead, Jim. I was going to say you mentioned Jetty and Tomcat. Um, one of the things we're excited about with uh, Mutant Web in particular is we're now uh, embedding Undertow. Which uh, you know, is kind of the JBoss uh, invented web server that is faster and kind of easier to deal with. It, it exposes WebSockets for us, which is something that we've been wanting to include in a mutant web for a long time. Um, we think we have some handy protocols around that that allow you to interact with your ring handler as well as any open WebSockets. You know, it's it's a little it's a little more than just a ring adapter because it'll let you you know deploy servlets. That's basically for pedestal, I guess, mm-hmm. and a few other performance enhancements. But we're we're very excited about that. We think that makes uh, a very compelling you know embedded web server for your closure apps. Hmm. Okay, that that is actually very helpful. I think I have a, a much better grip on the you know why I would why I would make use of. Something like a mutant, although uh, actually really I think the part we answered for me was why I would use something like an application server. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't know if we – you guys talked about the fact that a mutant 2.0, which is, as you say, an alpha now, lets you step – if you want to, lets you step away from the requirement of uh, using an application container, and I guess JBoss specifically, and lets you take a library approach. Mm-hmm. So I guess first of all, that sounds like a huge change, <laughs> a really it is. significant it is. change. Yeah, yeah. And so I'd love to hear more about what you had to do to make that happen, and then also understand if I'm not using an application container, what the characteristics, you know, the the trade-offs are mm-hmm. when I'm running it, when I'm working in that mode. If that makes sense. Uh, yeah. So, so first we can talk about changes to do that. We, we deleted a lot of code to be able to make that transition, uh, because with the mutant one, we were really tightly integrated with the application server using a lot of internal private, but not marked as such APIs inside the application server to do what we wanted to do. So we deleted all that and had to rethink how do we 
uh, initialize our app? How do we maintain these different components now that we don't have the application server always available to do that for us? So that was actually that was a fun challenge. It was a fun thing to solve. And what it did was it, it gave us a much smaller footprint to talk to, to implement when we actually do run inside an application server. Uh, and it also allows us to... Uh, right now, we're just supporting Wildfly 8.1 because that's the latest release. But uh, eventually, down the road, we'll be able to support multiple Wildfly versions, be able to support EAP, which, again, is the productized version of Wildfly. It's a little bit different. And possibly support other containers altogether, possibly run inside of Tomcat. That's, that's, a, that would, that's something we want to explore, but we're not going to promise that now. Then... Uh, uh, what was the second part of that question? Oh, oh like, so uh, how it behaves, how it behaves, and uh, the trade-offs. So you know, before before you talk yeah. about that, Toby, though, just to just to expand a little bit on what you're saying. Sure. You know, over time, the JBoss application server, now called Wildfly, has kind of evolved to the point where it is not a monolithic thing anymore. I mean, the the caching thing, Infinispan, you know, they've evolved to the point where you can embed uh, a caching manager in your application. Right, Hornet queues evolved as a messaging thing. You can embed that messaging uh, broker in your application. In other words, th- th- these these libraries, these external libraries, they're they're already kind of evolving to the point where we're just taking advantage of the fact that they don't need a container to run. We're kind of just, you know, a lot of what we do, Craig, is Java interrupt in our in our closure. You know, just integrating with them, trying, you know, putting a lot of thought into, you know, being consistent in our conventions in those closure namespaces to kind of make it feel inhabitable as you might move from one to the other, just in the mutant namespaces. Um, but we're really taking advantage of the fact that JBoss itself is is moving to more of a, you know, an embeddable, pluggable kind of architecture. And so then the challenge for us just becomes. You know, identifying that smaller integration surface area of Wildfly itself to say, hey, when you are in Wildfly, don't use the embedded message broker, for example. You know, use the one that's in Wildfly to take advantage, for example, of that load balanced message distribution and and the other features you might have from uh, being inside a cluster. So we're really just kind of building on what how JBoss is evolving anyway. Right, and and if you so, uh, and if you're outside the container, you say you're running just a, an app using a mutinous libraries. As soon as you touch messaging, uh, it's going to spin up a Hornet, embedded Hornet queue broker, right? And so that Hornet queue broker, that that particular JVM is now responsible for managing that thing. So then, if you want to use messaging for multiple applications to communicate with each other, and you're not inside Wildfly, then the other applications will have to connect. You have to manually say, okay, I know that that Hornet queue is running. On this no on this on this at this address at this port and connect directly to it. Uh, if those were running, if those applications were instead running in a Wildfly cluster, then that's all handled for you by Wildfly, and you just talk to the local NVM Hornet queue, and it manages distributing those messages across the cluster for you. So when you're running outside the container, you do have to do more uh, management yourself, and the same for uh, the caching piece. Yeah, and then so for for the scheduling, uh, when you start scheduling, as soon as you schedule a job, it's gonna it uses courts, so it's gonna start up a a, a courts scheduler for you and schedule the jobs against it. But you don't get the a singleton failover. So in a cluster, you can name a job, say you name a job foo, uh, and then deploy and start that job, schedule that job on every node in your cluster. It's only gonna run on one node if you've marked it as a singleton. And then as soon as that node, if that node dies, it'll immediately start up on another node for you. 
but outside the container, you don't get any kind of guarantees like that. Gotcha. So you have, to, you have to be more careful about managing, making sure your jobs are running as they're supposed to. Okay, that makes sense. So at that point, so I can see a couple benefits to using a mutant absent a container. Mm-hmm. Um, one is, as you said, you've handled a lot of the job interop, and depending on the particular job API you're working with, and I'd love to talk about this more in a little bit, um, that can be more or less pleasant. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> quite a bit less pleasant, actually. Right. So that's one benefit is that you guys have, have gone through the trouble of making what I assume is a sensible closure you know, uses maps and stuff like that rather than right. a, a bajillion set calls Th- to uh, to manage these services, uh, well, or to manage these capabilities, really, I should say. And and so that's one advantage. And then another advantage is if I decide, if I if I if I think I might go to a container, then I can start off outside that for whatever reason. Maybe I'm just you know playing around or exploring or or there's buy-in that needs to happen elsewhere in the organization or whatever, then later it becomes much easier to make that transition because your API is, is you know, essentially identical. That's exactly right. Okay, yeah. so those are two fairly obvious advantages. Am I missing any, or are those the, the primary ones? Uh, with regard to being inside or outside the container, that's pretty much it. You know, no code, no code changes, and you're, you just get automatic enhancements once you're in there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, talking about uh, the APIs and, and how we've wrapped those, I think, like if you like if you, if you take courts for example, like most of the time when you're using courts and you schedule a job, 99% of the time you just want to schedule a job to fire on a certain schedule. You don't have, you don't want, but courts, the abstractions in courts are a scheduler and a trigger and a job detail and various other pieces that you have to make. You have to know, you have to have, you have to create a bunch of these objects, configure all these objects, and then, and then mash them together in a certain way to make them work. When most of the time you don't care about any of that stuff. And so our, our API there is just schedule a job. Mm. And if you, and if you want access to the underlying scheduler to do all the interrupt, to do any of this fancy stuff you need to do 1% of the time, you still can. But our API doesn't expose that because the most common use case is I want this job to fire on this schedule and not worry about any of the other stuff. So that's one thing we try to do with the APIs. Same for messaging, because the JMS for, is... And caching is a good example, too. Because, yeah. you know, I mean, that's one of the big knocks against enterprise kind of Java things, is they just give you an option for everything. But one of the goals for a mutant is to kind of more emphasize kind of the convention over configuration thing. You know, emphasize the common cases, but but still make the... The uncommon ones possible, right? Make yeah. the easy easy and the hard impossible. Uh, sorry, yeah. possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was not a Freudian slip. That was just <laughs> me being an idiot. So, okay, great. Well, uh, you know, actually, so th- that all makes total sense to me. What I would love to hear, actually, is, I mean, you guys have obviously done a boatload, uh, possibly even a metric boatload of which I think is 1.73 boatloads. It's, nice. it's, it's a, a lot of interop. And it's actually one of the things that I think is a significant experience in Clojure. I mean, I personally really like Java interop in Clojure. I think, uh, you know, I've done it long enough that it, it makes sense to me and it's a huge advantage that it's there and I find the syntax to be fairly straightforward. But I've heard other people express different opinions or have different experiences around it. And there's certainly there's some corners when you get things like proxy and, you know, weird inheritance cases and mm-hmm. stuff dude, like that. Dude, yeah. I am so with you on that. Well, I, 
I'd love to hear your experience on this. Well, even now it's to the point where we've been doing it so much that when I have to explore a different Java library, because I'm of the opinion that life's too short to use an IDE, so I won't even do it. But (laughs) but now I, I prefer... Being at a, firing up a REPL and just using interop to kind of explore that Java library. To me, that's easier uh, than navigating just through the source or an IDE. So I, I'm completely sold on that. I, mean, I, 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 I prefer using Java libraries from Clojure than, than, than with Java itself. Could you expand on that? I mean, what is it about... I'm not sure I could articulate this to myself, but I think you've done a lot of it. What What is it about... So you know you're talking to a Java programmer. Why would they believe you on that? Well, point? It, you see, it's 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 a fine line to cross because it probably gets to the point of type for me. And types is always a touchy subject. I'm the wrong guy to talk to about it because I'm strongly opinionated on for most of the apps. You know that. Well, I shouldn't say that, but in my experience. I would rather not have to know or deal with what exactly, you know, what what type needs to be returned. I like the ability to uh, explore instances of subclasses without knowing exactly what type they are, just kind of querying them from the higher level. So in, in my mind, I can use the Reflect API just to see what the functions are, interact with those to see what the library does. To me, that is, I learn more doing that than having to be, you know, more or less knowledgeable of what of what of what that type hierarchy is. I get, you know, like you said, it's a personal experience. It's hard to uh, describe. Well, the, when, let me just ask: What are you using? Any tooling or just a bare REPL? I mean, how do you you know? Do you just create an instance of something and then you know call call yeah. dot get methods and see what methods it has or yeah just cider and you know closures uh I, I think the reflect library uh i just have you know a little user space where you know i can see what the functions are and kind of interact with those it's you know it's not it's it's you know it's not nothing fancy uh just a matter of knowing what the what the methods are i can call and what you know what their arguments are mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it's, it's basically what I do as well. Toby, is that your experience as well, or do you have any uh, anything to add to that? Yeah, no, that's I, I do something very similar to what Jim does. I mean, I, I do when I am writing Java, I do use an IDE, but I use Emacs for everything else, and and I do prefer like I'll, if I'm trying looking at a new Java something I've never dealt with before, I'll, I'll start by like reading little docs and then get frustrated because the, the examples are you know take this thing, compile it, run it, and I'm like I don't want to do that. So then I. <laughs> create a sample project, throw it in there, and then fire it up in the REPL and start poking at it that way. In fact, that, that's it, it. That's something. If I want to know how something, like if we're doing when we're working on Wildfly integration, we are having to touch internal pieces. There's a registry in there we have to get things out of. So instead of trying to read the docs on that, because there aren't that many for the internals, instead I'll just throw an app, a, a mutant app, into Wildfly, have it fire up a REPL, connect to that REPL, and then from there start investigating that running process to see how it behaves instead of trying to rely on documentation or, or source code. Yeah, I think, um, right, yeah, that, that's, yeah, right. I mean, REPL, REPL plus dynamic ability is, is super awesome for exploring, no question. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that, so that, that brings up something else, too, that we're doing uh, in a mutant, is that, we so with our interop, we are actually not talking to JMS directly, and we're not talking to InfiniSpan directly. What we're talking to is we have this uh, this shim project called Wonderboss, which abstracts, provides abstractions for messaging 
and caching and that sort of thing. And we did that. Uh, so so and so and it also simplifies some of those uh, APIs for us a little bit. And we did that so that uh, Tortbox, uh, which is the kind of the sister project to Mutant for JRuby, it's it, uh, Tortbox is going through a very similar transition right now to move to just uh, just gems and and not require a container and to be more dynamic. And so Wonderboss is a is a is a common platform that we we share between those two projects to make that simpler. So, and I'll, so one advantage of doing that with Wonderboss is since we have uh, an additional messaging abstraction in there, it actually would let you uh, say you were talking so instead of talking to a JMS broker or HornetQ specifically, say you wanted to talk to Rabbit with uh, just writing the proper Wonderboss. Uh, implementing the proper Wonderboss interfaces in Java, you could then use the Mutant a- messaging API to talk to RabbitMQ with no changes to your code. So you could even you could you could switch out messaging providers underneath if you wanted to. You could even have use it as to talk to two at the same time. You could say I'm going to talk to Rabbit and then also talk to uh, Hornet because I have to use both for whatever reason and bridge between the two. You could do that using the same API. So that's something we think is fairly nice. Has that been challenging? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Jim. Well, it's a trade-off. You know, it, it, it is. Right. It is. It is. You know, it's interesting to. We both work on Torquebox and Immutant, and, and to just to think about the evolution of those projects and how our development of Immutant has kind of informed how we think Torquebox should work. Torquebox kind of came up under the model that, hey, you know, when the when the application deploys, you know, there's this deployment step where everything gets triggered at deployment. This didn't work at all for a mutant. And mutant, just because of the the REPL experience, we needed things to be much more dynamic. And so uh, it made it such that when you went back to Torquebox, you kind of missed that dynamicism, if that's a word, dynamicism? (laughs) We'll we'll, we'll grant it. Whatever. So so a lot so so that we decided that we also have a, a number of users who take advantage of the fact that you know Ruby apps and Clojure apps can communicate via you know messaging and caching uh, caching while inside the same container you know so so when when you when you get that message you know it looks like a Ruby data structure on the Ruby side and when you put it back in it looks like a Clojure data structure on the other side. You know, that's a neat thing, but in order to support that as it kind of evolved, we needed that behavior to be more central. So we needed in that, you know, the Wonder Boss is where that, you know, behavior is defined. But the trade-off is that it's now kind of Java code, right? Mm-hmm. So, so in a Mutant 1, you could look at the closure code and get a better sense of what was actually going on. Now, some of that is just delegating to Wonderboss. So, you know, to, to actually look at the code, this is probably more of a problem for us than uh, this, gets back, this gets back to navigating Java libraries through the, a closure REPL, is, is that you have to do that. You know, Wonderboss is, is a Java library because, you know, Torquebox via JRuby has no problem consuming that, and obviously Clojure has no problem consuming that. So it's nice because it allows us to kind of treat those two applications better, support both of them better, faster. But it's a bit of a trade-off, you know, if you're if you're just looking from the perspective of one of them, uh, unless you just really love Java. No comment. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, actually, that kind of leads me to a question that I wanted to ask you guys. So I think a lot of people in the Clojure community, although this is less and less true based on my experience like the at the conj every year you know a lot of our listeners are interested in closure but don't use it in their day job you know you guys are professional closure slash ruby slash java developers i guess but you're certainly doing 
you're getting paid to do closure and do it on a regular basis. I, I wonder what's if, if you have like an origin story, if you will, like uh, how you know kind of how you came to 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 closure, and then a, a corollary to that would be <laughs> something that happened to me, which is when I write other languages now, I write them pretty differently than I used to um, because of my experience in closure land. So I don't know, maybe Toby, you could start us off if you have a, a story there. Uh, yeah, sure. I think, you know, I first learned about Clojure. I saw uh, Stu Holloway give a talk at a Ruby conference, like an intro to Clojure talk. This is probably around, I think, Clojure 1.1, maybe. Uh, and so I immediately went out and bought his book and then put it on the shelf for uh, quite a while. I'd pick it up and try to read it. And uh, But I'd always, like, after working at, you know, my day job, I'd pull, pull that off the shelf and be like, I don't want to look at a computer. I just want to read. And that's the wrong way to try to learn a language, by just reading. <laughs> Uh, unless you're uh, reading about Scheme, maybe, I don't know. But uh, we were working on Torbox, and Jim and I started just chatting about, hey, wouldn't it be neat if uh, you could do the same stuff with Clojure? Because we had a little interest in it. And So I took a day off work and just said, today I'm going to learn Clojure and spent all day on it, and then spent the next three days trying to get Torbox to understand and deploy a Clojure application, and not just a WAR file, but actually being able to to read closure data off disk and know how to find the application and spin up a runtime and all that stuff. And that, that was kind of, that was kind of how we got started with it. And, and, and from that, like just from doing closure, you're right. I think it's, it has changed the way I write Java. It's changed the way I write, write, I, I write Ruby as well. Uh, it's been a big change for me. And, and it's funny. I, I, I was at a conference, I guess it was EclipseCon back in March and somebody asked me, so, you know, what, what would you use closure for? What's it good for? Cause there's people always say, People often say to me, like, oh, here, Clojure's good for, for crunching data, as if it's like a special purpose language. And I'm, my response is, well, it's a general purpose language, and I use it for as many things as I can, which people respond with, well, yeah, uh, well, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, and that's all you have. And, and uh, But I think I think that Clojure's much more than just a hammer, right? Since it's a general purpose tool, you can do a lot of different things with it. And so I'm, I uh, forgot where I was going with that, that thread. <laughs> That's but, okay. Uh, yeah, we can, we can throw it to to Jim yeah. and get his his take, and I'm sure it'll but, come back you know, to. My 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 story's different. In, in in school, I was very interested in AI at the time, so I was doing uh, Lisp and got all into Emacs. So when I got out of school, I started doing enterprisey stuff, but I still wanted to stay in Emacs. So I was doing Java in Emacs for years, and you know, as painful as that was, it's still you know, Emacs is such that. It's really for any if you're interested in adopting any new uh, language, it's great because you're always going to have the, the the language modes created for uh, Emacs first. So I could experiment with things like Python. Actually, when I first went out of school, I was doing C++ stuff and was an early adopter of Java itself, mostly enabled by people writing early modes for Java in Emacs. And, you know, so I, I was just interested in languages. Uh, looking at others, I you know, and, and had a similar experience with Python and then Ruby. But when Clojure came on the scene, I'm like, awesome! I mean, this is matching up, uh, you know, the crap I was doing in school and liking uh, that style of development uh, with the ability to to apply it to the enterprise uh, Java space. So yeah, I mean, it, it just it made a lot of sense just from what my history was. Yeah, I had largely the same experience, which was as a, a person who was interested in many of the same things you were, you know, advanced, I will use the word advanced languages, but maybe that's not the best term, but languages with features that weren't generally available in mainstream languages, but point, yeah. using it to do things 
that were the things that I was being paid to do. I was, that's exactly, when I saw Closure, I'm like, yeah, that's it. That's like, exactly. I mean, you got, I mean, Immutant is really kind of an expression of this, right? Which is, you know, you're writing an application for some commercial entity. And so what do you need to do? You need to send messages on queues. You need to have a web server. You need to have that's caching. Right. You need to have these things. And, um, you know, I want to do it with uh, a language that gives me certain features and boom. So, I mean, that, uh, you know, that set of stuff is, I think, I think it's very congruent with, with Clojure's persona as a very pragmatic language in the sense of being used to do kind of commercial stuff a lot of the time. Without a doubt. And, I, and I'm sure you guys see that at Cognitech. Uh, do you guys run up into any, you know, uh, roadblocks with with the you know the Java enterprise guys not wanting to give up their types or well I, I think you know I can't speak to specific projects and my client the you know Roomkey who you've heard me talk about on the show before right. they're they're all in on closure I mean they're very progressive in that way but but certainly um, having conversations with people you know on the show and at conferences and whatever. Yeah, of course. Out in the world, there's, oh, that's different, right? Anything is different, right? And, right. and people have, as you alluded to earlier, they have attitudes about, you know, uh, the advantages of certain features for, you know, for example, static typing that Clojure has a certain view on. Other languages have different views, and they have they have their opinions about those things that are sometimes different than the ones that are kind of inherent in Clojure. So, for sure, of course. We, we all know that closure is not used by, <laughs> to, to, a, to a first order, it's definitely not used by 100% of the programmers, right? right. Um, as much as we're seeing, you know, every year, I mean, business is, is crazy right now. I mean, we are, you know, it's been a surge and every year has been more and the conge gets bigger every year. And, and I'm awesome. sure you see, right? I mean, you see this with a mutant too is, um, you know, you have an application server which is already inherently a subset of how people are building applications, as is any tool. And then on top of that, it's closure. But at the same time, I know people are using it, right? I mean, just based on conversations out there. So, And I imagine you're seeing that trend has increased, I would guess, dramatically over the last you know, year and a half. Absolutely. Yeah, the community adoption has grown steadily, but even nicer for us and to enable us to keep doing what you were describing us working on closure professionally is we're starting to hear, you know, EAP subscribers. That is, you know, Red Hat's commercial support for that uh, package. We're starting to hear them, you know, ask about a mutant and, and, and can uh, a mutant uh, be included amongst that support, you know. I mean, Red Hat's got very strict you know, qualifications for being able to support a product. But just hearing those kind of uh, questions come back from the field is awesome. And it, and it makes us think we're going in the right direction. Yeah, anytime people are asking about, can I buy support? That's that, right. That That's means right. they're serious, right? They, right. We want to pay you in case something goes wrong with this because we're, we're doing real stuff that, that matters to our bottom line. So That's right. Right. Yeah, and I think, I think a mutant, you know, two of our goals are, uh, related goals are that we, we're trying to make something that is expose these technologies to make it easier for closure users to use them, but also to to be a bridge for Java developers to to come to closure. Like if they're already doing enterprise stuff, they can mm -hmm. see maybe there's a better way to do that. I know it's it's a hard sell, for, like you say, for a lot of Java developers, but both of us, Jim, both Jim and I have done a lot of Java in the past and know the pain of enterprise Java development, and we want to make those folks uh, more, happier, I guess. Yeah. Awesome. So, are you either of you, either or both of you, going to either or both of Strange Loop uh, or the Conch 
Funny uh, you should ask that. Yeah. Uh, so I, uh, I'm not attending Strange Loop. Uh, I, I, I don't because it always falls right on my birthday. Ah. Uh, and uh, uh, we both have conflicts this year for the con, so oh. we're not going to be able to make it, unfortunately. Yeah. We have been, we have been, and it's disappointing. We have been to every con except the first one, I think. We've been to every yeah. Closure West. Uh, so yeah, we're. It's kind of sad that not this one. Yeah, I missed I missed the most recent closure West myself, and uh, it was it was a little disappointing. But of course, I also looked at it as well. We're to the point now where there are enough major conferences featuring enclosure that I actually have to start choosing. Sure, <laughs> which right. is a good right. sign right. for somebody whose career is at the moment tied to uh, and for the and for the future as far as I can see tied to closure. So. Looks like a pretty happening schedule, though. Uh, some yeah. good talks. Yeah, yeah. we just announced yeah. uh, the. I think the speakers have been notified, and by the time this episode goes out, the the talks will be on the website. I think they're putting those up today. So. Uh, I think they're already on. They're they're on lanyard already. Oh, they're on lanyard. Okay, cool. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I, I you know I don't want to uh, I don't want to close it down, but I do want to make sure we um, we leave time if there's anything we've forgotten to talk about. I, I don't know, uh, Jim. Was there anything else that you'd like to to mention to people before? Uh, uh, on this episode, at least, uh, uh, I uh, I think we pretty much you know cover it. Just yeah, I can't think of anything. Well, let's, and actually, I thought of one thing. Let's just talk because you guys mentioned this to me briefly when we were talking about scheduling. Is um so no, right now you're in alpha, and uh, so kind of how do you see the trajectory towards the two O release? Right. Well, uh, we want to make sure we're we're a little bit a little bit tied to the to the release schedule of Wildfly itself. We want to make sure. That uh, when we do release uh, an official mutant version, that it that it works well uh, inside Wildfly. And Wildfly is on eight. The, their version is eight one right now. It's nine is scheduled to come out. I think the first beta sometime this month, middle of this month, and then uh, sometime in November they would do final. So we we want to be very confident that you know our first mutant deuce official release. Uh, will work well with uh, Wildfly 9, so we're kind of uh, look for uh, look for the release sometime in November, I guess. Okay. Well, we won't pin you to that, but that's good to know. Awesome. What about you, Toby? Anything that you think we should still cover today, or that you want to mention, or you know, you know? Yeah, there's a couple of things. I, so for Mutant 2 compared to Mutant 1, I think one of the really nice things, uh, which is totally unrelated to the software itself, is the licensing. Uh, it's open oh, source, but point. yeah. But uh, Mutant 1 was LGPL, uh, which turned some organizations off. We've had people say, I can't use it because it's LGPL, given uh, the lawyers in the organization. But uh, Mutant 2 is all ASL. It's all under the Apache software license. So that's a nice change. And we're, and we're able to do we – since we were so tightly integrated with the application server before, we had to use the same license as the application server. But that's one nice thing. We Since we're now divorced from it somewhat – uh, we can uh, choose our own license, so that's 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 a big deal, I think. Uh, another piece, I guess, is oh, so if uh, just want to mention that that we we love talking to users groups. So if anybody out there uh, is interested in having a talk on a mutant, whether you're a closure group or a Java group or a JBoss users group, whatever, we'd be happy to see what we could do about getting getting to you and talking. Because I think that. I really enjoy. I think we both really enjoy talking at users groups because it's more relaxed than a conference, and you can you can kind of direct the talk based on questions you get and be much more interactive. So yeah, along those same that. lines, uh, you reminded me that I, I would like to make sure everybody knows about the immutant.org website, and we 
pretty much completed the tutorials, although they're really more guides than tutorials for each of the, the libraries. And we also have kind of a companion uh, feature demo application um, up on GitHub that enables you, you know, in its readme tells you how to uh, deploy it in a variety of different ways, in container, out of container, Heroku, whatever, and also has uh, example apps that can kind of show you how it does failover and session replication, distribution, all that other stuff. And and it's the kind of app that we, you know, in the past for user groups, we kind of just dissect that app. And so it's available for you to play with um, and get more familiar with the APIs, whether we talk with your user group or not. Yeah. Cool. I, I know. I know. User group uh, coordinators are always looking for talks, and I know uh, you guys would be great. Anybody's and, seen you talk. And, and and you should mention. I don't know when this podcast is coming out, but uh, Toby's going to talk in Tri Closure at some point. Yeah, that's September twenty fifth. So that'll probably yeah. be before this is out. Probably. I don't. Yeah. We have a pretty good backlog right now, and right. Uh, since you guys aren't like, if you know, we sometimes we try to coordinate on release dates, but you're. You're thinking November-ish, so uh, this will probably be... A, well, we'll see, I guess. But if you happen to be hearing this before September uh, 25th, then you should definitely right. go and check out Toby's talk at TriClosure. And we'll put a, we'll put a link to TriClosure in the, in the notes so people can, can see that. And, and if not, then great talk, Toby. Yeah, it was awesome. It was amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah. I like the part where you explained how to end the problems in Syria. That was really impressive. That, that's, I'll close with that. I, mean, I, I closed with that, yeah. That yeah, was good. it was yeah. amazing. Well, cool. Um, you know, I, there actually is one more thing I wanted to ask you guys about because, of course, this is the Cognicast. And I didn't even mention the fact that you guys have a story around in Immutant around Datomic that you had to do some work to make that uh, happen. I wonder if you could uh, relate that. Yeah, we could. I was really, I was really tickled that when Datomic first came out that they included Infinispan uh, as one of their back-end stores. And it makes sense, because I think Datomic will work with any back-end store that can do a transaction, and Infinispan can certainly do that. And so at one con or Closure West or something, you know, Rich asked if, if the Infinispan and the Mutant could be configured as a back-end store for Datomic. And at the time, it couldn't because uh, Datomic relies on Hot Rod, which we didn't, hot, you know, you can kind of read the blog post to figure out exactly what Hot Rod is, but it's Hot Rod is a very it's it's a way you can connect to a a, a remote Infinispan cluster. So so just to make just to make that work, we I kind of went to the trouble of if somebody wanted to use Immutant as a backend data, data store, they could do that by something. I don't I think we did it through the Line of Mutant plugin actually. Uh, the trick, uh, as easy as that was, I won't do. I shouldn't say easy, but as possible as that was mm -hmm. uh, with a Mutant one. It's a little trickier with the Mutant 2, actually. Hmm. And so I think, yeah, we're still kind of trying to work out exactly uh, what the the integration... Because I think, yeah, because when you're out of container, you, you don't really have an Infinispan cluster anymore, right? So I, I'm almost to the point now where I think the right way to do... If you want to use Infinispan as your back-end store for Datomic, I might just fire up just a separate uh, Infinispan cluster. I'm not sure it makes sense to involve a Mutant 2 in that configuration. And I'm not sure that's bad or good. It's just kind of reflects, kind of reflects the re-architecting of, of a Mutant 2. And, well, I think, too, along those lines is that with a Mutant 2, the goal is to be able to 
deploy your application to a completely unmodified Wildfly instance or cluster. Uh, so you're using a stock configuration. And to get InfiniSpan to the point where Daytime can talk to it, you'd have to make quite a few modifications to the configuration of that Wildfly. Um, so you got a lot of hoops you have to jump through that we can't do for you anymore since we don't manage that Wildfly instance for you anymore. So it's a little more work on the on the user's part. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, you know that's uh, that's good to hear. I mean, good to uh, good to know rather. Good information for people that are out there that might be uh, considering that. Um, well, cool. I I, I think uh, is is there anything? I mean, I would, we asked Jim this question. Is there anything else, Toby? Before we start to. Mm, I think I think that that covers. Uh... I think that covers everything. I've got a little list of things here, but I think we've covered most of that stuff. So super cool. Yeah. Well, I know you guys are always uh, thinking about this stuff and working on it, and uh, and the, it sounds like the the space, like the container space, and specifically the uh, Wildfly one. Um, it sounds like that's still an evolving space. So you guys are continue, continuing to track that, and it sounds like there, you know, every possibility that uh, <laughs> I don't even know if you meant. You guys are probably going to like want to slug me if I if I were to say you know, the words uh, 3.0, because, of course, you're hard at work on 2.0. But uh, anyway, my point is I'm sure that you will have many interesting <laughs> things to say about a mutant and about the other things that you're working on in the future. So we'll, we'll certainly be more than happy to have you back on uh, in the future. And uh, it's a bummer you're not going to be at the, be at the cons. It'll be a great uh, great opportunity to, uh, to see you there. But I uh, have to catch you at uh, Closure West or one of the other conferences down the road. Um, but uh, we have come to the part of the show where I ask... Uh, Toby to give us a song to go out on. So Toby, what would you like us to play? Let's I think we're gonna close with I Like Hubcaps by Brack. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a really happy song. Uh, we'll end on a on a, a nice happy note. Okay, cool. Bring, bring a little joy to the world. That yeah. is fantastic. We yeah. there is there is even even when even for those of us who get to do closure on a on a daily basis, you know, for, for actual money that people give to us to spend on things. More happiness is never a bad thing. So uh, I, I got to thank you guys for coming on. It's been, I'm so glad that we finally took a chance to do it. I saw the alpha announcement. I'm like, all right, do I really need an excuse to have these guys on? But now seems to be the time. So I really appreciate you guys coming on. Uh, Mutant has been on my list. And I say that that's about a lot of things, but it absolutely is true. It's been on my list to check out. I really, I understand it a lot better now. Um, I totally get why I would want <laughs> someone to take, someone else to deal with the stuff that... Uh, that a mutant hands me, you know, around uh, just all the things we talked about, cluster and discovery and caching and messaging, etc. So so thanks a ton for coming on to uh, to talk about us, but it's been great to have you guys. Thank yes. you for having us, and we really enjoyed it, Craig. Yeah, it was, it was great. Thank you. Okay, good, good. All right, well, we will close it down there. This has been another episode of The Cognicast. Thanks for listening. And falling on my head, falling on my head, and I grow You have been listening to The Cognicast. The Cognitecast is a production of Cognitech Inc., whom you can find on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at Cognitech. Our guests today were Jim Crossley on Twitter at jcrossley3, that's J-C-R-O-S-S-L-E-Y-3, and Toby Crawley on Twitter at tcrawley, T-C-R-A-W-L-E-Y. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento, audio production by Russ Olson. Our producer is Kim Foster. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.